0: Awesome. Well, I've got a message for you today, and we're going to jump straight into it. It's called The Whale and the Worm. How good? Yeah. Uh, The Whale and the Worm. I want to start by asking you this. Does anyone have in their world someone that you know to be an exaggerator? (laughs) Last week, I had someone point at me. I mean, last service, point at me, the nerve of them. I mean, we probably all know someone, at least someone like that in our life, right? We know how it goes. It's like, yeah, I went fishing in the weekend, and I caught a fish that was... This big, yeah, sure. Or or classic granddad move. Boy, when I was young, I had to walk to school 20 miles, uphill, barefoot, in the snow at 5 a.m. The story gets longer and longer every time. And that was after milking 200 cows. (laughs) You know, people exaggerating their stories can kind of come across like a character flaw, can't it? But if you think about it, I reckon that they're kind of doing this for a specific reason. It's that they don't want you to focus on the details so much of the story as much as they want you to focus on the reason, the lesson, on the magnitude of what they're trying to say. It's like accurately describing it doesn't accurately depict what's actually going on. I'm guilty. I do this all the time. Like if I'm driving along and someone comes racing past me, I might say, man, they came racing past at 100 miles an hour. <laughs> Why do we feel the need to say miles in that moment, I don't know, but we do, right? They came racing past at 100 miles an hour. Now, the truth is they didn't. That's really fast. But if I explained it accurately, I was driving at 99, no more, and someone came racing past at about 122 kilometers. You might go, oh yeah, they were going a bit fast. And I'm like, no, but I want you to understand how I felt in the moment. I want to give you a clear picture of how I was startled and taken back by the excessive speed as it went past. And so I might use different language so you understand how I felt. I'm not trying to lie. I just want you to understand the magnitude of the situation. I might also say that the contents of a McDonald's hot apple pie are a million degrees Celsius. That one's true. I'm not changing my mind on that. That thing is, be careful, people. Make better decisions. Do you get really frustrated when people exaggerate their stories? If you do, I want to present a challenge and say maybe it's because you're focusing on the Details of the story, whereas the storyteller is trying to get you to focus on the lesson. I mean, Jesus taught like this all the time. In Mark 10 25, he says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, people would have heard this and thought, Jesus, you're a joker. That makes it impossible. And then they would have concluded, Does that mean that all rich people go to hell? And of course, Jesus clarifies, No, that's not the case. He's like, You're not hearing it right. I'm not talking about camels, and I'm not talking about rich people. I'm exaggerating this so that you understand that there are some things in life that when you try on your own strength, you can't do it. But with God, all things are possible. Saying, don't look at the specifics. Try to understand the lesson. Today, we're going to dive deep into the book of Jonah, the whole book together. Don't worry. It's one of the short ones. It's one of the ones you read when you just need a little pep talk for yourself and say, I read a whole book of the Bible. We're going to go through the whole thing. But the whole way through, I want you to ask yourself this. What is it that God is saying? Uh, Not so much the details, but what is the lesson in all of this? All right, you're ready. Two-minute version of the whole book of Jonah. Here we go. God tells Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach a message to warn them that destruction is coming their way because wickedness has been highlighted to God. Jonah's like, "Here, nah, how about I don't and just say that I did. And rather than going uh, east to Uh, Nineveh, where he was meant to go, he runs down to a port, he hops into a boat, and he sails to Tarshish, which is the opposite direction. It's like the westernmost port of the known world in that day. While they're on the boat, God brings this huge storm, and the sailors are freaking out. And so they wake Jonah up, and they say, do you know why this is happening? They all pray to their different gods. They roll dice, decide it's Jonah's fault, and they're not happy. Now, Jonah knows that he hasn't been a good boy. He's been trying to run away from God. And so he concludes and convinces the sailors, if you just throw me overboard, the storm's going to stop because actually this is all my fault. I read that and I thought, that's an extreme way of getting out of your problems. They chuck him over and the storm actually stops, but Jonah is swallowed by a huge fish. He's in there for three days before the fish vomits him out on the beach. And you get a sense that God's laughing like, Jonah, You thought you could get out of it that easy? He's like, I'm the giver and taker of life, bro. It doesn't work like that. Now you're just back in the same spot covered in fish vomit. How embarrassing. God gives the command again to Jonah, but this time he listens. And like a teenager, he accepts it, but he's not pumped. And he goes dragging his feet. Jonah turns up, get this preachers, a five-word sermon in Hebrew, and it's really effective. Not only do the people of Nineveh turn their hearts towards God, but the scripture says that even the king and the cows repent. What a sermon. (laughs) That's good work. God forgives the people of Nineveh. And get this, Jonah's so angry. He says, I knew you were gonna do this, God. Why make me come all of this way to share this message if you were always just gonna find a way to be gracious anyway? And Jonah is so angry the story said that he wished he would die. That's angry the story finishes with this funny scenario where a plant grows over Jonah and then a worm kills the plant and then it disappears again. Ta-da, the book of Jonah. All right? (laughs) Now, there's two main thoughts on the sort of story that the author of Jonah is trying to tell us. The first one is that he has received this historical account of this guy named Jonah and he's trying to pass it on to us as a historical account of the things that happened in the life of Jonah, this short revival in the city of Nineveh. The other view is that there's a bit more to the story than what first meets the eye. That Jonah is a real historical character, but that it was meant to be taken more as a narrative parable. That he is this figure, but rather than taking it as a historical account, we're meant to take it as a parable. Now, both views hold that Jonah is a real historical figure though. And I mean, even Jesus mentions Jonah a few times and people look to that and they say, see, that's proof that it's a historical account. But actually, if you go and read all the scriptures where Jesus references Jonah, he's not appealing to the historical nature of the story, but he's doing what he usually does with Old Testament stories. He says, these are different figures and stories that ultimately point back towards him. That Jonah and the fish for three days is like a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what's interesting, though. No matter what view you take, Jonah is unique in the way that it tells its stories. It gives no dates or names, except, of course, for Jonah. No dates or names. It doesn't even name the king of Nineveh, who was the leader of the biggest, baddest empire the world had ever known at that moment, which is really interesting. And I think the reason for that is because the storytelling style of the book of Jonah is satire. It's like where you take known figures who are somewhat typical and you place them in extremely ridiculous stories so that it highlights how flawed and ridiculous these people are. And we watch them and we read these stories and we encounter that and we laugh and we say, that's so outrageous. I can't believe that's happening. But the goal of these authors is to critique you, the reader, by getting you to laugh at it while it makes fun of you. I mean, the modern day version of this might be like a meme sometimes. You you, you look at a meme online, the picture with the words, and you laugh. You say, ha, that's so good. That's so me. Uh, here's an example of one. I don't always go to church early, but when I do, I sit in the aisle so that you have to step over me to find a seat if you're late. <laughs> like We might look at that and go, that's so funny. It's so true. I do that. And so The idea is that you're laughing, but really, ultimately, you're laughing at yourself. Well, this is the book of Jonah. You can take that away. Otherwise, you'll be looking at that handsome man instead of me. You have Jonah, the son, not the son, the man of God, who runs away from God. It's interesting that he's actually the most hard-hearted and hateful person in the story. God has to literally take him on this mission and have him vomited out by a fish where he preaches a five-word sermon in Hebrew. It's really successful. And then he's angry and wants to die. The last time I preached a successful sermon, I didn't find I wanted to die. And then you have the bad guys, the heathen pagan sailors of chapter one and the big bad Ninevites of chapter four, the most murderous and oppressive people the world has ever known. But it turns out that it's actually these people that have a more sensitive conscience and actually turn their hearts towards God. I mean, even the cows in Nineveh repent. And so in this whole story, everything is crazy, everything is weird, and nobody is acting to their stereotypes. Another really funny aspect of the story is that everything is over the top. The word great or huge in Hebrew is gadul. And it's mentioned 15 different times across these two pages. And so you find everything is huge. Like the storm is huge. The ship is huge. The fish is huge. The city is huge. This is how it's describing it. In fact, it says the city is so huge that it would take three days to walk across it. Now, any ancient reader reading that would have cracked up laughing. It's not funny to us, but they would have read that and gone, what, that's ridiculous. That makes it a 45 mile journey. But Nineveh was seven miles all the way around. Like, and that was still big for its day. But the point here is the author is exaggerating. He's throwing it out of proportion because it was in fact the biggest city that the world had ever known at that point. And so you find that Jonah is hugely happy And then he's hugely afraid. He's like a manic person, right? Who needs an ancient therapist. That's what Jonah is. But this is what the author is trying to do. He's telling us the story and he's trying to wrap us in. So we're we're listening to the story and we go, oh, that's such a great story. And this is crazy. And this is happening. And that thing's huge. And he's so stupid. And you finish the story and you go, oh, that's me. Maybe that's me in the story. It's a story full of extremes, but for a reason. You see, when something's exaggerated, it allows you to see it more clearly when perhaps it was hidden before. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I love our tech team at the back, the unseen heroes of our dream team. These guys make everything up here seem amazing. Um, and one thing I've learned about how the sound technicians do their thing, not much, but I know this, that When they're doing a sound check in the morning before you even arrive, and the band is here and they're like learning, you know, getting the songs ready and everything, they turn the volumes up really loud. And by doing that, they can all of a sudden they can hear the little imperfections in the sound. They can line things up. They can find the imperfections and the intricacies and they can get it all right. And then they bring the volume back down. But see, if they didn't exaggerate it, they would have never heard it. There were details of the story. There were details of the scenario that they would never have noticed if they hadn't exaggerated it in the first place. And this is why the story of Jonah is exaggerated, that you would see things clearer that might have been hidden before. There's a few different, lessons that I think we can learn from this entire story of Jonah. And we're gonna look at a few of them a bit more specifically this morning. The first one is this, uh, it will cost you either way. It will cost you either way. Chapter one, verse one of Jonah. It says, the Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh, announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the lord. So where God was, he wanted to not be there anymore. He wanted to remove himself from God's presence, but it's interesting because the Bible says where the spirit of the lord is there is freedom. So Jonah thought he was fleeing for freedom, but really he was fleeing from freedom. He fled to a place where there would be so much less confrontation on him. Check it. It says he went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. So he wanted to get away from God. He wanted to run away from the presence of God. So he goes down to a place and he says, is anyone else going there? Is anyone else headed in that same direction? Let me be part of your crew. And so he goes to find people that are already fleeing in the same direction. Then it says he bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. So he paid the cost. He was willing to pay the price for the ticket to get to Tarshish, but he wasn't willing to count the cost for what God had called him to do. Listen, whether you run towards God's presence or whether you run away from it, both are going to cost you something, but only one will bring you true life. And so my question for you is, what boat are you in? In fact, probably better said, whose boat are you in? Are you with people leading you away from the presence of God? because he got alongside other people that were leaving God's presence, and what happened? It ended up bringing calamity on their world with that storm. Do you find yourself avoiding the call of God in your life by simply positioning yourself in a place where you're no longer confronted? See, Jonah's a prophet of God, and so he knows that what he's doing is wrong, but he thinks if he doesn't look it in the face, if he doesn't acknowledge it, if he positions himself around other people that don't really care, then maybe he can just act like nothing's wrong. Now, I think Jonah, in fact, I'm I'm convinced, Jonah's a prophet of God. He knew that he was fleeing from an omnipresent God. He knew that wherever he went, the presence of God would be, but he went to where the confrontation would be different. He would be fleeing from God's people. So rather than fleeing from God, you find he's actually fleeing from accountability. He fled to a place where others were focused on things of this world so they would be less likely to challenge him on the things of God. Simply put, he went to a place where he would hear what he wanted to hear. You know, the ancient city of Tarshish and its location is highly disputed among scholars. Some are like, it was definitely there. And some are like, it was over there. And yet others are like, it was there or there or there. It's like different scholars put Tarshish to be a different place. But despite this, most scholars do believe that the city of Tarshish was a supplier of huge quantities of important metal to King Solomon in Israel, mainly silver, but also gold, tin and iron. And so it made it a place that was focused on the material, a place that was focused on wealth, that was a place focused on the earthly rather than the heavenly. And maybe this is why Jonah thought it would be absent of the presence of God or at least other people of God to keep him accountable. Isn't it interesting that although the city was perhaps having a focus off of God for all the different people, all the different scholars and all of their different minds, Tarshish was a different place. Your Tarshish might be different from your neighbor's Tarshish. But it's the place that you go, it's the place you physically go or mentally go or your spirit goes where you feel like you could get the furthest away from God. Remember, it's not so much the details of the story as it is the lesson do you find yourself getting pulled towards people, places, events, and environments that won't point you back to God. If that's the case, then maybe this is you in the story. Maybe this is a sign, whether you realize it or not, that you're running from the call of God on your life. Because we read this and we think, Jonah, you're an idiot. You can't run from God. But maybe that's the exact point that the author is trying to make. Listen, whether you're on your way to Tarshish or Nineveh, both have a cost, but only one will bring you life. See, when you run from the presence of God, it'll cost you peace and contentment. It'll cost you satisfaction in life, healthy relationships, dignity and integrity. But when you run to Nineveh, the place or the thing that God has called you to, well, that's gonna cost you as well. It's gonna cost you the the fact that you have to make personal sacrifices, that you would live a life of example. Maybe you need to lay down your own plan in order to pick up God's plan. Both destinations are gonna cost you something, but only one will lead to true life. And just like the perceived contentment of Tarshish, just like Noah, you never actually arrive. You never actually find that place. First lesson we can learn is that it's gonna cost you either way, but only one leads to true life. Second thing is this, God's call is stronger than your disobedience. I remember when I was younger and I used to love watching cricket, and I grew up. (laughs) Sorry, Angie Thiel, I know you're a hardcore cricket fan. Uh, But I remember when I was 10 years old and I was watching the Cricket World Cup, and I'd watch like every match, like I was pumped on it. And that night, it was the Cricket World Cup final. Now, I don't know what went down that day, but my brother started it and I finished it. And... My mum was furious, and so she sent me straight to my room for the rest of the night. But without thinking about it, in my limited little teen-year-old brain, I just booted out, well, I don't even care, because i got a TV in my room. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How many people know it wasn't that long until old Frosty did not have a TV in his room? And I pleaded with my mum. I said, mum, please, it's the World Cup final." Now, most people don't necessarily care about that, especially not mums. And so in classic fashion, she carried the TV out of my room and she told me that because of my behaviour, I had been banned, that I wasn't allowed to watch it. And I remember that night crying myself to sleep instead of watching the World Cup final. Now, looking back, I realise I'd probably rather cry myself to sleep than watch a game of cricket. (laughs) I mean, stories like this might fill many of our childhoods, you know, where we feel like our disobedience has disqualified us from the good things in life, that because we've messed up, we can no longer expect the best. And while this is just the way it can be sometimes with other human relationships, it's completely different when it comes to our relationship with God. God is a God of justice. We know that, we know that to be true and yet he still extends this undeserved grace because he believes in us too much to leave us down. See, God had placed a significant call on Jonah's life to deliver this game-changing message but he had turned his back on God and even though he ran away to stick to his own little plan for his life, God's grace was still enough. God's grace was still sufficient. Jonah is so ashamed uh, and he's feeling so distant from God that he convinces the sailors to throw him over the over the ship. And he gets swallowed by a fish. Now, I don't know if you read the story like I do, but I read that and I go, That's brilliant. Shame, Jonah. That's what you get. That's the punishment you deserved after that little episode of running from God and jumping overboard. Like that's what you deserve. But I wonder if that's how we view our own disobedience. Now I've messed up. I just deserve to be thrown overboard. I just deserve to be punished. And sometimes we look at the fish swallowing Jonah as punishment, but you know what I reckon? I reckon the fish was a display of God's grace to give Jonah another shot. He's run away. He's given up. And yet God still desires to work with him. God's call on your life is more powerful than your previous disobedience. You haven't been disqualified You haven't been banned. And even though you may have been running away, God has never stopped pursuing you. I want you to think about the command given to Jonah. He is asked to go into a city that is known for skinning their enemies and preach against them. That's a tough crowd. Like God could have just given the message with a big booming voice from heaven. He could have announced his judgment on a conch horn or another sort of horn or whatever, And I'm sure Nineveh would have responded pretty quickly, but he didn't do that because he almost never does that. God almost always chooses to work through His people, but He's not looking for perfect people, just obedient and available ones. And Jonah eventually got there. See, when Jonah flees, God pursues. When Jonah falls, God lifts up. The whale wasn't a punishment, but it was the strong, miraculous display of God's grace. I mean, I can guarantee you that the Ninevites were praising God for the whale. For if it wasn't for the whale, there would have been no sermon, five word sermon, powerful. If it wasn't for the sermon, the Ninevites wouldn't have turned their heart towards God, avoiding punishment and destruction. The author's trying to highlight something by exaggerating the story. If the man of God can turn his back on God and convince people to throw him overboard to avoid the call on his life, and yet God still has grace for him, then He certainly has grace for us too. I'm wondering, maybe it was the Ninevites that invented the Jesus fish bumper sticker. Who knows? (laughs) God's call is stronger than your disobedience. His call on your life still stands. Third and, and final lesson we can learn this morning is this. God has authored a much bigger story than we have. I'm not sure if you've, uh, you probably have, because it's 2020, uh, you've used like the maps feature on your phone, little GPS maps app uh, to find your way around the streets. And I used to use it all the time, uh, especially uh, going across Auckland to different rugby grounds for the different matches that I had. And when I first started using it, I remember I was quite familiar with the Auckland streets, but not like completely. And even now and then, my little maps app would uh, suggest a route and I'd look at it and be like, you You reckon? I'm like, this guy, you reckon that's the fastest way? I'll be like, no, 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 no. I reckon if I fang it down the side street, take this street, that street, go down there, I've got a better way. Right? Like, I'll take over from here, Siri. <laughs> I found out pretty quickly that Siri always knew better than me. Like the path that I thought I had wasn't crystal clear and there's a few other random streets that I'd forgotten about. Sometimes I came across traffic that was news to me, but clearly not news to Siri, hence the suggestion of an alternative route. I learned quickly that Siri could see more than I could. That even though I had my vision and my plan, it was much more limited than the big picture. Jonah chapter four, verse one to four. says, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn your back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. And the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? and you can join me now. That'd be awesome. See, sometimes what can seem like a change of plans is really just a picture of you and I aligning our hearts and our lives with what has always been God's plan. Jonah's upset because he has his life. He's got his little prophetic ministry lined up. He's got his enemies over here and he's got his nice little plan over here. And he's so focused on this that he loses sight of the fact that God wants to use him in this incredible act of mercy and grace. God was trying to pull Jonah into a story that was bigger than what he could see. You know, I first thought that Jonah ran away because he was scared, but Jonah wasn't scared. Jonah already knew exactly how God was gonna respond. He just didn't see how that fit into his little plan for his life. He's so bitter at his enemies that when God forgives them, he says he would rather die than live with the reality of his enemies being forgiven. You know, just like Jonah, I think many of us here today believe that there is a significant call on your life to do something great for God, to rise up to the bigger picture that He has for us. But what's holding us back is we quite like the little control we feel we have over our own little vision for our life. Jonah has a conflicting plan for his life than what God has. And his response to this challenge for growth is to run away, to get into an environment where there's less confrontation, less challenge, to find affirmation in other people who are also running away, to preserve his own little vision for his life by ignoring what God is calling him to. Is there part of your life that you're hauling off to Tarshish and God isn't welcome there? Matthew 16:25 25, said, Jesus says this, if you hold on to your life, you'll lose it. Challenges our thinking. We try to keep control, but if you hold on to it, Jesus says, you'll lose it. But if you give it up for my sake, there you will find it. The book of Jonah finishes with this funny scenario where Jonah's now gone outside the walls of the city of Nineveh. He sat down to watch it to see what will happen. The sun's beating down. He's so angry, he wants to die. And you get a sense that Jonah still hasn't learned the lesson. God causes the sprout, this plant to sprout up and grow over Jonah, giving him shade and comfort. The Bible says that Jonah is very pleased with the plant. It says it like that, it's so good. <laughs> the next day, God causes a worm to come along and eat the plant until it dies. Exposing Jonah to the hot heat again and then he cries out and wants to die again. I read that. And I thought, that's hilarious. I thought, what's going on here? Is God just toying with him? Like, is God taking him from comfort, sorry, discomfort to comfort and back to agony again in the same day? Remember, it's not the details, it's the lesson. I think the plant and the worm were a powerful display of God's ability to give and take away, to give and take away. The worm was a display of God's sovereignty. It was showing God, God was showing Jonah that he was in control, that he could command things of the natural world to come into alignment with his will. It was a raw display of his power showing Jonah that he is more capable than Jonah could ever ask, think or imagine. And so we see in the story that God uses a whale and a worm, to show us that he is rich in love, abounding in mercy, and is so powerful, he could do anything. Oh, silly Jonah, why won't you trust God? Oh, silly Frosty, why won't you trust God? Maybe today, oh, silly you, why won't you trust God? Let's take a moment to pray. Why don't we close our eyes? God, I thank you that despite any form, any level of disobedience, turning our back, choosing our own way, that we've ever taken part in, this doesn't disqualify our future. That your call on our life is more powerful. It's stronger than any mistake that we could make. I thank you, God, that like Jonah, you've got a call and a plan for each of our lives. And even though we've messed up and felt like running away, you've never stopped pursuing So God, would you remind us that you're close today, that you hear our cry, that you hear our prayer, that the thing you desire more than anything else in this life is to know us and to use us for the exciting plans you created us with. I'm gonna pray a prayer in just a moment. And if you're here in this room and you don't know the love and the grace and the leading of this God that I'm talking about, well, today is your moment right now to get your life right with God. Listen, you don't need to get anything into order. You don't need to go away and arrange a few things, but God's grace is sufficient. It means it's enough to meet you right where you are today, to forgive you, to give you brand new life and to set you on an exciting path ahead. Doesn't mean it'll be easy, but God will be with you every step of the way. If you've never prayed this prayer, maybe you've prayed it before, but you've drifted away from God, I'm gonna invite you to pray this prayer in your heart today. I'll pray it out loud, but you pray it in your heart and you make it your own. God's promise is that if you were to do this and mean it, that the old would go and the new would come. You would be a brand new creation today. I'll pray out loud. You pray this in your heart. Say, dear God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, that I've chosen my own way, that there's been times when I've ran. But in this moment, God, I turn from that life and I turn towards you. I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to a cross to take upon himself the punishment that our sin deserved. And now that that price is paid, we have the option to walk away freely. God, we thank you for that grace. We ask you now to come into our life as our Lord and as our Saviour. I commit to you right now my whole life holding nothing back.